So we are back for actually the last episode of the motherhood series. And just as we began it with an honorable mention, we're going to finish it with an honorable mention this time for Elizabeth Blount, also known as Bessie, who was the mother of Henry VIII's only illegitimate child that he acknowledged. I think this is a nice one. And I know when we were planning the main series, we were trying to find a way to put her in the main series and we just couldn't do it. It's a little bit different, um, but I think it's quite an important story to be able to shed light onto because a lot of the time she's often ignored. Yeah, Bessie Blount is that interesting historical figure that it's maddening, but it's also typical, I think, of a lot of women who fall through the cracks of history. She wouldn't be important if she hadn't had her son. So it's like everything before that and everything after that, there's really not a ton for us to talk about. Like, he is her entire sort of reason for being recorded. Otherwise, we probably, we would have even less of an idea of who she was. So it's going to be kind of a hard episode because we're going to have to do a lot of looking between the lines and kind of glossing over a bit and in a way that maybe might seem reductive. But it's really just that we don't know. and. Once again, you know, infuriating, but that's kind of the lot of a lot of women in history is that they are only important in a lot of cases because of the men who they become adjacent to or give birth to or whatever. So definitely worth the conversation to restore as much as we possibly can of her life, because I know it's a name that if you follow the tutors, you know, if you study them, you, you know she's there, but how much do we actually know about her? I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. I do want to start out, though, by talking a little bit more generally about Henry VIII's extramarital affairs because it's something that I think has come into pop culture of, um, I mean, the man has six wives, so he has this reputation for being kind of promiscuous. And as we've seen on the show, he likes courtly love and he loves being in love and he likes romance and all that. So how did sex fit into all of that? He's not actually having as many affairs as, say, um, you know, his contemporary, the King of France, Francois. Oh, no. Like, I mean, you know, the sort of stereotype of, well, he's French. Um, but he has, like, you know, the, the king's mistress is an official position at his court. It's one that Henry kind of tried to emulate. Um, he wanted to give Anne Boleyn that title. And she's like, yeah, no, that's not happening. So it's it's ingrained in the culture. And I think this is a really interesting period to look at that because this is the period when he was married to Catherine of Aragon and she's pregnant most of the time. She's suffering through all of these really hard pregnancies. Many, if not all of them are um, ending in losses for her. So her body is taking hit after hit. She's suffering emotionally as is he. And it's not uncommon for men to seek, quote, comfort from other women while their wives are pregnant. It's just, it's kind of just a thing. Um, if we're looking at it from Catherine's perspective and, and not what our modern brains think her perspective would be, but what it probably actually was, it wouldn't have been unsurprising. I think she was in, they were in love, you know, Catherine and Henry were in love enough that it probably would have stung but she couldn't necessarily hold it against him. Henry would have been taught that men have more needs. And if your wife is pregnant and you, the, the tradition was sort of that you can't touch her while she's pregnant. You know, there's nothing happening while she's pregnant where you need to take your needs elsewhere. 
And that is a completely normal thing to do, especially if you're the king of England and you can pretty much get whatever you want. And I, I think, too, Catherine's not naive. You know, she's not new to the world of aristocracy or anything like that. She is like she is royal through and through. And she was brought up to kind of expect, you know, your husband has, as you very politely put it, has certain needs. Um, and your job is to keep him happy. But, you know, if he is finding that comfort point elsewhere, you you don't sort of challenge it. You kind of just accept that it is happening. And yes, you can be unhappy about it, but you don't really have a say in it. So Bessie was one of the king's earlier affairs, but as we'll see as we go forward, I think she holds the distinction of being potentially the more interesting of them. And not just because she had the king's child, but because Henry was like very weirdly private about his affairs you know he didn't actually he he liked the persona of being loyal to Catherine without actually having to be loyal to Catherine so he kept him very hush hush and we have little sort of um allusions to affairs scattered in letters or like you see that he's giving a cash present maybe to one lady and you can kind of insinuate what's going on but Bessie was there you know, everybody knew her name. Everybody was joking about her. And it, and their romance slash affair actually carried on for a lot longer. You know, it wasn't like a one and done type thing. So as we'll see, she kind of, she does hold that distinction of being a little bit different for um, capturing his attention. But uh, yeah, don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much, but I just want to kind of clear that for us of this it sounds super reductive and i'm sorry catherine but yeah that's just how it was because it, it what well, it happened but i think there's a like you said there's a weird distinction with her because you know we talk about other mistresses or other women who have slept you know were renowned for sleeping with henry the eighth for example mary boleyn ancestor she's not spoken about with the same reverence as bessie is it comes back quite neatly into the the story that we've been talking about regarding motherhood in the sense that Bessie was a successful mistress and was able to provide an heir to Henry. So as is in true form with the um with the 16th century, and especially with when it comes to women, we don't actually know when Bessie was born. <laughs> what a surprise what a surprise um the the most likely date that we have is around 1498 now we know that she was born in shropshire at kinlet hall and that her parents were john blount and catherine Perschel. um so we get a we get a snippet about her so it's not too much but you know we know we know kind of whereabouts in the country she is but the the, the blount the Blount family weren't nobodies. And I think in a weird way, if you want to think about her by a modern comparison, in the same way that people refer to the now Princess of Wales, Kate, as a commoner, I think that is a kind of a, as a kind of what you then think about Bessie. This was a family that had aristocratic and royal connections, but they were kind of on the fringes. Still a huge honor, though, when Bessie is selected to join the household of Catherine of Aragon. I've seen a bit of contention about when this happened, like whether she joined Catherine's household upon Catherine's marriage to Arthur, her first marriage, or it was later after Catherine became Henry's queen. Regardless, though, she was in the court by the time Catherine was queen. She was one of Catherine's maids of honor. And um, I like, we have one of her um, pay stubs, essentially. So she was paid like five pounds a year for her services, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, so she was around court. She was clearly well regarded as somebody who, like you said, isn't necessarily ennobled herself, but she's on the fringes enough to be around all of the people who matter yeah she she's still getting the invites to the parties that she needs to uh capitalizing on all of that so that's always a really uh that was great for her again like we were saying at the start there's, there's not that much really known about bessie you know we don't have any of her own writing that survives or any of her letters or anything like that but what does survive is 
the fact that she was meant to be an astoundingly beautiful woman. If we were to take the date of 1514 when she first came to court, she would have been about 14, 15 at the time. So even at that early age, she was everyone was kind of commenting on, you know, her looks and how, how pretty she was and, and everything like that. We do have some contemporary accounts of her personality though you know a bit in the in the sort of um stereotypical women way of one size fits all um there were people who saw her would sometimes occasionally write not only that she was apparently yeah very beautiful kind of the beauty standards of the day the like fair skin and fair hair she she matched that description but also too she was very light on her feet you know she was a good dancer and she participated in all the court uh, masquerades and every pageants and everything she apparently uh yeah she liked music she i think could play an instrument although it seems uh there are contradicting statements about that so like i said it might just be a one-size-fits-all description of her but yes but she was generally just very kind of alive and charming and if she was out dancing the the impression i get is that everybody would be looking at her so from those descriptions it's kind of easy to see why henry would have picked up on her because that's kind of a checklist of all the things he likes you know like is she fun is she pretty does she like music can she dance well bing 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 so it feels like we we got here kind of quickly but really that is all we we really know about bessie is that she comes from a good family she's pretty she catches henry's eye and here now we start kind of the um infamy maybe we say because again details of her relationship in whatever form with henry are a bit scarce he tended to keep these relationships private she was a bit young um she was probably in the neighborhood of like her late teens probably when henry began to show interest in her and probably as is henry's style it begins with more of this courtly love thing like the writing of poems and music um dancing apparently she was his preferred partner for a lot of the you know pageants and masquerades that henry loved so much and this would have been seen as more of the look but don't touch um you know the fair maiden and the knight kind of play acting love when it actually turned and it became a physical relationship is up for debate but what i think is interesting is that it goes on for quite a while the fact that he has bessie stick around and you know she's in catherine's household so she's there anyway but it maybe it's it probably starts slowly and then it escalates to me is interesting because it lasts for a long time and then you get people talking about her more openly and everybody knows about her more openly simply because of that longevity there's very much a marking his territory that goes on with the public dancing and the, you know like you said he, she was his preferred dance partner and nobody's coming near her and nobody's touching her all the while he's got an interest in her. There's none of the sort of nastiness around it that we get like with Anne Boleyn. Yes, that relationship was very different, but it's just it's just very much accepted. And again, it, like, it might be part of her youth and people just got on with their day and they'd talk about her and Henry and they'd see them together and about, oh, yeah. And sadly for Catherine, the queen, it correlates with a time when she is going through some of her harder pregnancies. It's like sort of the last few of her pregnancies. There is the physical and emotional toll that Catherine is going through while her husband, who, again, you know, remember, he's six years younger than her and he's not going through all this physical turmoil. He's out there dancing with her ladies and waiting and having a great time. So it's sort of the mood at court, I think, is in very two very different camps and Bessie as a lady in waiting but also Henry's preferred companion kind of would have been straddling that awkward line so however accepted it is that the king does have a mistress or a companion and he flirts with women and whatever it must have been pretty awkward I can't imagine going to attend Catherine especially if, to, if she had to do it in a smaller group or maybe they were in an instance you know they were just together themselves the conversation would have been bubbly because Catherine knows. Oh, yeah. You kind of have to talk around the fact that Catherine knows. And 
yeah, obviously we don't know enough about Bessie to know how she handled that situation, but definitely an awkward situation considering that Catherine is increasingly on shifting sands, not having given Henry a, a male heir. I do think Bessie has the advantage of, though, existing in that time, however contentious it was, just because, yeah, there's there's all this tension happening, and all of a the sudden then she becomes pregnant by Henry. She's pregnant by August of 1518. And yeah, like we said, the, the affair in whatever capacity has been going on for a few years. It's fairly well known that she is the king's companion, mistress, whatever you want to call it. And now suddenly she's being sent away from court very discreetly to give birth to the king's child. It's not Henry's style to claim illegitimate children. Whether or not he had more than Henry Fitzroy, we obviously will never know for sure. There's been a ton of speculation, especially with like Mary Boleyn's children, for example. But Bessie, I think, comes in. She's been the king's companion for a few years. And then in 1519, she gives birth to a son, Henry Fitzroy. And I just think that if it had been any other time or like, say, if Henry and Catherine's son, Henry, who who passed away a few weeks after he was born, if he had lived, then Bessie probably would have still been, you know, put away and we wouldn't really know much about her. But for Henry VIII, his son, Henry Fitzroy, uh, which, you know, the surname meaning literally the son of the king, it was just the perfect timing of like, see, look what I can do. You know, I can produce a male heir. It's not me. The I'm problem's not, the problem. not me. It's her. It is her. Exactly. So Bessie benefits from it just because of the timing. So it's like, however much you don't want to be part of this conflict between Henry and Catherine, it actually, it worked out very well for her and, and for her son. Again, to your point, you know, she's not, uh, after the birth of Henry Fitzroy, she's not hushed, you know, she's not kind of, pushed away somewhere into obscurity and she you know she's not just kind of not spoken about or not welcome at court again um you know henry fitzroy himself um is actually well looked after until about 1525 you've got cardinal wolsey taking care of his his education and most likely under the orders of henry um wolsey arranges a marriage for bessie um to take place in 1522 to one of his servants gilbert tail tailboys yeah, I, I was waiting for you to tell me how to pronounce this name I, 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 it's, give me your english pronunciation expertise oh no it is tailboys i thought because i thought it was tails boy and I, I every time i read it i read it differently that sounds like a like a, a servant in downton abbey i'm the tails boy <laughs> 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 no, but uh, yeah. I think I think the um yeah. the the timing of this marriage is interesting because Ooh, it's not yes. after well for several reasons. The first being that it's not right after the birth of Henry Fitzroy; it's a couple years after. And at first, I was thinking, well, why is it so slow? And then I was like, well, well, duh, we just did the season on motherhood, you dummy. It's because she the the baby had to be weaned, so she was probably very actively involved in the early rearing of Henry Fitzroy, um, you know, weaning the child for the first couple of years of his life. And then it's kind of like, okay, you're done now. You can, you can go off to the country with your new husband we've given you. But then, part duh, he, <laughs> Bessie had another child fairly soon after Henry Fitzroy was born. It was a daughter named Elizabeth. But the timing is a little off because it's, after her betrothal but it's before the marriage so there's a lot of speculation as to whether the daughter elizabeth was actually fathered by henry or her husband officially she was claimed by bessie's new husband so whether or not it's true we'll never we'll never know but the timing is a little funky so and again, it's it's part of this conversation, right, that it would suit Henry better to claim the male child rather than, eh, I already have a daughter, it's fine. Yeah, I, I don't need another one of those. They, they serve nothing for me. So, I mean, we would 
we will never know. And there is no accounts of a, a small red-headed child running around the English countryside with a with a Tudor temper. So, <laughs> uh, so, so we do, we don't know. But um, it is fun to speculate here. I think I'm leaning more towards it is Henry's. But yeah, that's just my yeah. These for me, it's like you'll never know. So why why even <laughs> wonder after a while? You know. These are the questions that do keep me up at night, though, sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> when I can't sleep, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, like, whose child was it? <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, regardless, it just shows the kind of standard format of what to do with your mistress once you're ready to let her go for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, and it is to find a, a expedient marriage for her and mm -hmm. send her to the country, and she'll stay there. But, uh, I mean, sort of not horrible for Bessie in the sense that she makes a good marriage. She mm -hmm. seems to have, I mean, we don't know a ton, but she seems to have an okay life with this man. They have uh, three children together. So she's, you know, she continues to be a mother. Interestingly, she still kind of stays in Henry Fitzroy's life. I mean, not to the extent that maybe like a queen would be in the life of her child, but she writes to the people who are taking care of him just to make sure that he's okay. Um, she sends him gifts. She probably does come to visit him occasionally, though not a ton. There is that separation probably that Henry would want in the same way that like later Edward was kept away from his sisters a lot of the time because it's like, you're the male child, you're the heir to the throne. So we educate you separately. We're getting you out of the women's sphere a little bit. I am. Um, I was reading the last quote actually to get ready for today's episode, and I think that's one of my favourite things in regarding the separation. Like, you know, she wasn't physically present with him. You know, um, after fifteen twenty-five, he was sort of set up with his own household and things like that. But what she did know about him was that he liked horse riding. <laughs> I mean, it's still like that. You know, you can't yeah. say that you you're into this one thing because then for Christmas for the next seven years you'll be getting stuff with it i mean you know i studied i studied in the uk and suddenly everything i owned had a union jack on it you know it's like it's just it's what parents do so it's it is sweet that you know oh i heard that you're you're such an accomplished writer that now i'm going to ask you about it and i'm going to send you a horse and all this other stuff this is only we will have an equestrian base i mean fittingly quite royal so we will have a relationship based around hunting and, and horses <laughs> but it's but it's it is that 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 yeah. love and that interest that um we can identify with too i think yeah and uh just it goes to show that she might have been physically kept away a lot of the time as is sort of tradition but she was still wanting to be part of it and regarding him as still one of her children even though in her new marriage she had the three children who she saw much more frequently yeah absolutely no, like like you said, we we don't really know much about her life with with Gilbert Tailboys, um, but for all intents and purposes, the marriage was a good idea for him. He had a great time because Tailboys was um, his financial fortune increased. He was given money, um, and he was also granted lands. And then in fifteen twenty three, was made the sheriff in Lincoln, and by fifteen twenty nine, was Baron Tailboys of Keen, kind. If anyone in the UK is from this place, K Y M E, please, please drop us a comment and let me know if I said that right, because um, I'm not sure. Um, so I mean, he he did really well out of it, and you know, even Bessie's social status was was climbing as a result, but not necessarily as the mother of Henry's illegitimate son. No, if that makes sense. Like she was technically rewarded for it you know she's set up in this good household and her husband's given plenty of money to take care of her in style and that's great she still has some contact with her son so that's great but that's we make fine. the best of it moving on we'll, we'll we'll create some geographical distance here um and you know we'll, we'll set you up but that's it and so it was accepted but not dwelt upon yeah, and Bessie's life, for the most part, does, I think, pass kind of uneventfully once she's put into the country. Um, her first husband does pass away 
young and she eventually remarries and you get the impression that it is a love match the man she chooses to marry lord edward finds clinton um who uh, probably married in around 1532 was much younger than her and she other people were pressing their suit like for example um lord leonard gray was a suitor who proposed marriage to her uh gray as in he was the grandson of Elizabeth Woodville through her children from her first marriage. And then he was the uncle of Lady Jane Grey. So, you know, a well-connected name in Tudor history for sure. But um, but yeah, she she declined his proposal and instead married a sort of more lower status, lower connected man, much her junior. So yeah, I mean you, you just get the impression that it probably was one of her choosing. And they had three children together. So she had three more children. There's a little bit of irony going on here with the amount of children that Betty goes on to have. She has two more sons called George and Robert. And then she goes on and then she has four, four daughters. The, the, the mistress of Henry VIII, who gave him the son he so desperately craved, then went on and had a, few, a lot more children. So... Again, realistically, would have probably made him the perfect wife. Uh, sadly, though, as you know, you're probably becoming used to on this show, because I feel like we say it all the time, we don't know much about Bessie's later years. And um, I mean, even the stuff that we've talked about is a lot of it is just speculation based on context clues and whatever. But this includes when she um, dies as well estimations give her death date between 1539-1540. She may have died as a result of childbirth complications. We don't know. It's all very sketchy. I mean, to the point where we don't even know where she ended up being buried. She was just, I mean, if this kind of shows you that she's a historical figure in the sense that we know any of this at all, and she's very well connected to history through the birth of her son. But once that happens... It's sort of, yeah, whatever. She died at some point and she was buried somewhere, presumably. We don't know, uh, which is just, it's, yeah, like we've been saying, that's kind of how women fall through the cracks, right? Is once they end their associations with whatever men they're connected to, that's not worth recording anymore. Because she outlived her son, Henry Fitzroy, as soon as he dies, all mentions of her sort of stop and just disappear completely. It's a horrible way to phrase it, and I know we said it before, but it's almost like once she's no longer useful or of any relevance, like you said, like you know, we know about them as long as they're useful to men. That's it. That there's no, there's nothing keeping her tied to to history or to um, the centres of power. So she just stops being mentioned. So that's all kind of really we know about Bessie. Um... It, it seems like a short half, you know, for a, a complete honorable mention episode, but she came in, she had uh, her stint at the Tudor court, she contributed to Tudor history in a big way, and then she fell into obscurity. And that's really, really all we know. But I think her greatest legacy, which we're going to pivot to in part two, is the complications um, that her child had on Henry's great matter his relationships with his wives and yeah and so we're gonna look more to how maybe her her son and her legacy interacted with our queens maybe more than she did talked about his birth a little bit and i know this is technically supposed to be an episode about his mother but this is really the only time we have to talk about henry fitzroy and his relationship with the two women who like i guess you could loosely call his stepmothers although they certainly didn't think of it that's not how they thought of the relationship but um when we were planning the series we talked a little bit when we were organizing the stepmother's episode whether we should include Catherine of Aragon technically as a stepmother because she did kind of have another child in addition to her own 
in the form of Henry Fitzroy, but not quite technically. And, you know, Anne Boleyn kind of, she interacted with him too, but we just, we, we decided that the relationship was way too flimsy to include in that episode. So we're putting it here. Um, and <laughs> I think it makes sense though, because it's kind of, um, we're looking at it as Bessie's legacy almost and her, her contribution to the mess that was the Tudor court in the 1520s and 30s. I suppose in the same way, Game of Thrones style, where you've got Jon Snow and Catelyn Stark. I begrudgingly acknowledge that you exist as a person, but I don't have to like it and I don't have to talk to you. Exactly. I think, again, a bit like his with Bessie Blount, it's better to have two short halves about these Henry Fitzroy and her than have no halves about them at all. Because they're worth mentioning. And because of shows like The Tudors, which focus more on the, you know, obviously the romantic side of things, I think a lot of people find themselves wondering, well, how was Catherine, for instance, um, interacting with the women who were sleeping with Henry on the side or whatever? And especially once Bessie gave birth to her son, how was Catherine handling that? And how, how was the relationship between the two women? And we've kind of already busted that by saying that uh, Bessie was shipped out. So, um, you know, there really wasn't a ton of room for Catherine to interact with Bessie once that happened, except through how Catherine regarded Bessie's son. So like in that kind of tenuous way, we, we were linking the second half um, to Bessie's episode, which, yeah, hopefully that makes sense to people. It made sense to us. <laughs> so now that we've defended our decision um, please carry on listening uh just to refresh and so that we're all on the same page uh henry fitzroy was born in the summer probably june of 1519 and yeah he was from the very beginning though kind of born in secrecy henry was really thrilled to have a male son even an illegitimate one because it helped reinforce the idea that there was something wrong again in his mind in his marriage to Catherine where um you know maybe he could father male children but they were you know they were stillborn or they died shortly after birth whereas here Bessie is giving him a healthy male baby and it's sort of a yeah it's the living proof that there's nothing wrong with me and he's given the surname Fitzroy which is from the French Norman tradition. It literally means the son of the king. So from the very beginning, there is no mistaking this. It's not anything that's hidden from view. He's right there. He doesn't necessarily just stop there either. That He uses that Tudor propaganda machine to his full advantage. So when Henry Fitzroy is then ennobled, he's given the title the Earl of Richmond. Which was the same title that Henry the Seventh had. I guess it was seen as kind of the original Tudor title because yeah. uh, you know Henry the Seventh inherited it from his father. That that was like the big title that before Henry the Seventh became king, that like Margaret Beaufort was fighting for him to have. They named um, their big sort of palace outside of London was Richmond Palace. You know, it was a big, big name for them. But <laughs> you. You can't help but think how such an image-conscious image person as Henry VII, and actually, and his mother too, would be mortified if Henry VIII said, by the way, I've named my illegitimate son the Earl of Richmond. Like, isn't it great, but it's continuing on that hereditary male Tudor title, and they're like, what? No, no, we can't go through this again. Don't do it. Change your mind. What? Call him something else. <laughs> Huh? Um, yeah. But this is where, to me, it gets interesting with if we're talking about kind of the perception of Henry Fitzroy from the perspective of our queens, because Catherine, as we said, it's kind of the Jon Snow factor of he's there and it's great. But Henry Fitzroy from birth has his own household. He doesn't really have a ton to do with the court yet. Um, but when he's ennobled, now he's starting to become more of a thing and Catherine is having a harder time ignoring it and it's one of the few times that it's recorded that she says or um, does anything to show her displeasure the Venetian ambassador writes that 
The queen resents the earldom and dukedom conferred on the king's natural son and remains dissatisfied. When you don't have a ton of documentation as to these women's feelings, that's like a giant billboard that says WTF. You know, it's she's really insulted by this. Yeah, and I think with that, the word dissatisfied now is a bit watered down. However, I think if Catherine of Aragon is reported as being dissatisfied about something, that's like her spitting venom at somebody. Again, it would probably sting. It probably wouldn't be a a great, warm, comforting feeling for you as the queen that your your husband's natural child, which is another term for illegitimate, is being ennobled to the highest ranking nobleman in the land. That's got a sting. But it is a little bit more acceptable than I think we sometimes acknowledge. However, because the Tudor court is bizarre, the implications of this for Catherine make it even worse. It's, you know, it's pouring even more salt in the wound because Catherine herself has not given Henry a male heir. At this point, Mary has been born and Catherine has suffered through the last of her pregnancies. She's beginning menopause, but just, and you can tell too, her body apparently is suffering from all the toil of all of these pregnancies. So it's kind of open knowledge that she probably won't have another child. And now Henry is doing this very publicly. Like, I, I don't have to tell you kind of how those circumstances make it that much more, yeah, hard to swallow. A potential thought that of, of Catherine's is, but what about Mary? What does this mean for Mary? Thinking about Mary's position of her future, that's quite scary. Well, it's not a huge leap to make if you're worrying about this, that, okay, my husband has this illegitimate son and it's the only son that he has. And now all of a sudden he's being appointed all of these titles. He's getting all these lands. He has a huge income for a child. He's being given all these titles. Like he's also a Knight of the Garter, for instance. So he's the highest ranking non-royal titled noble, if that makes sense. He's at the top of the, the hierarchy here and in a time with so uncertain so much uncertainty it's like who's higher on the food chain as it were is it the illegitimate but only son of the king who now has all of these titles and honorifics showered upon him or is it my daughter who has the advantage of noble birth but is still a woman it's like who wins in that fight so Catherine, i don't think it's a huge leap for her to start freaking out a little bit. And she did almost, well, she did really, went down fighting for Mary to the bitter end. And it's kind of a time for Henry playing around with different solutions to his problem. Like, he's acknowledged that the problem exists, but we're still not sure how we're going to handle it yet. And he kind of famously plays around with several different potential solutions and doesn't necessarily commit to any of them or talk about them openly, but people talk about them. So we know about them. So like we talked about one already this season was let's send Mary to Ludlow, uh, the traditional seat of the Prince of Wales and kind of hint at the fact that she might be my heir, but she can't be because I haven't named her princess of Wales. So we don't know that's technically not a thing. So like you can see there's all this ambiguity starting and part of that too is ennobling Henry Fitzroy um, as potentially a contender and to the point where like Cardinal Wolsey who is Henry Fitzroy's guardian and kind of the person in charge of taking care of him starts to float him as a potential match for people in in Europe like uh, Catherine de Medici he says hey that would be a really great match for the king's son and probably kind of insulting because it's the king's illegitimate son but still the king's only son and people were in europe were thinking everything in england is so up in the air that this might have the potential to to be something so you don't know i mean in like sort of a weird again game of thrones targaryen universe it was actually floated that potentially henry and fitzroy and mary could get married before everyone was like, no, we're already talking too much about brother-sister incest. This is gross. Let's not. And Catherine of Aragon surely 
would have been insulted. Like that would have been the icing on the cake for her to marry her daughter off to the illegitimate son of her husband. Yeah, she's not having that. She's raising her banners at that. Like she's not. <laughs> but like you said, like I think even for the Tudors, like they were like, oh no, this is a bad idea. And if they're telling you it's a bad idea, it's probably an absolute catastrophic idea and you shouldn't be doing it. We're in this problem because Henry's convinced that there's some incest going on. So let's not make more. I don't mean to imply that it was like ever a really serious implication or um, suggestion, but it was talked about and floated until everyone kind of was icked out and they stopped talking about it. It was never really yeah. a thing. It I mean, I just... think the fact it's on the mind map on yeah. in the meeting room. We're as brainstorming. Per- <laughs> yeah, as plan Z.7 million, we'll get there if we get there. It's right. still not a good look. But it just goes to show you how everything was so up in the air and how yeah. Henry Fitzroy was a really key player in all of that ambiguity at this time. Until, you know, it becomes apparent that uh, the best solution to this problem is to disregard the illegitimate son, disregard the daughter, and just try again for a legitimate son. That seems to be the answer to all Henry's problems, as we well know. And then the great matter begins. If only it was that easy. If only we didn't have to pull (laughs) down an entire religious institution and make our own way to get what we want. It took a minute, but we got what we wanted, so it was all okay. I mean... No, no solution in this problem is quite ideal. So we kind of we just we gotta have to spitball until something sticks, and Anne Boleyn is is what sticks. Um, so Henry Fitzroy, though, even though he's maybe not necessarily always being considered as a viable option for the throne, like you said, he's never not considered. Um, he's always he's always there, and he's being raised as a prince, even though he's not. Um, he's being educated as one. Henry has a lot of interest in his upbringing. He refers to Henry Fitzroy as like his precious jewel. Um, it words that he would then sort of recycle to talk about Edward with, you know. So the the comparison is clear. He really does think of this kid as his and a prince of the realm and a nobleman of the realm he's not completely off the table i just think that's interesting because the clear unease that catherine of aragon felt about henry fitzroy is translated to and just sort of gets uncontrollable in anne boleyn anne boleyn famously kind of an uneasy person when it comes to threats to her power understandably so henry fitzroy is a big one um you know however much she thought mary was an obstacle uh henry fitzroy is also there she's not playing when it comes to him but she also has to, i think she knows she has to be very careful when it comes to henry fitzroy yes henry fitzroy though hasn't done anything to provoke his father's anger He's just kind of there. By all accounts, he's like a very accomplished young man. Um, you know, he likes sports. He looks exactly like his father. He's not kind of the the pariah of, at this time like Mary no. is. So you can't necessarily openly dislike him as much as you can with Mary. But that doesn't stop Anne. <laughs> um, because... <laughs> Because it's Anne. You she's know, always got something brewing. She's always she's always thinking. Yeah. It's always some strategy. And for Anne, just as Henry was an obstacle to Catherine, this kind of what if question mark lurking in the corner. Um, Anne's thinking in terms of, especially after the birth of Elizabeth, uh, who is higher on the chain? Is it this kid or is it my daughter? You know, legitimate versus illegitimate, but male versus female. So she tries to kind of put Henry Fitzroy in his place a little bit, and she definitely interacts with him more than Catherine of Aragon did, especially because Henry Fitzroy is growing up and he's becoming um, a, a man. He's in his teens at this point. So, like, she does little petty things. Like, there's record of her sending Henry Fitzroy a horse that was, like, notoriously bad-tempered, and Henry <laughs> Fitzroy gave it back right away because he's like, what is this? I don't want this. Um, 
And then two, more probably notably, she arranges his marriage. So no longer is he being floated as a potential match for the who's who of European royalty. Anne Boleyn says, how about we marry him to my cousin, uh, Mary Howard? And Henry her Henry VIII says, yeah, sure, that, that works fine. Uh, apparently they, they were well matched in the terms that they, they liked each other. But also it's nice for Anne because... Now she has the king's illegitimate son firmly in the Boleyn camp. You know he's married to a Howard. I mean, you got you got to hand it to her. It's a bloody brilliant plan. How how do I limit him? Well, like you said, we take him away from the 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 who's who of European royalty so that they can't. You know, we're limiting that threat. But I'm going to tie his fortunes to mine, so he can't move against me in the same way I can't move against him. Petty, but uh, but pretty brilliant. Like, genius! This is, again, just like we were talking about in the, in the Stepmothers episode with Anne Boleyn versus Mary. It's probably not Anne's finest hour, but it does show how politically savvy she was. Yeah. Like, maybe not an example of her as a great human being, but definitely as a power player and a politician and somebody who is fully aware of how precarious her own position is. She needs to secure it and Elizabeth's position too, um, by extension. As a result, Henry Fitzroy is kind of on to the fact that Anne doesn't like him. And that he also is not thrilled about her based on their history of experiences together. So there is contention between them. Like Henry Fitzroy is definitely in the camp that, wants to see Anne gone. Yes. Uh, despite his, you know, um, being technically part of the Howard family at this point. 1536 brings up kind of the the most we get to see of Henry Fitzroy as a potential, like, adult political player and somebody who, like you said, had he not died young, which we'll get to in a second, um he might have become more interesting in this game. So in 1536, while Anne Boleyn is going through her trial and then is eventually executed, Henry Fitzroy keeps talking to people about this paranoia of his that Anne had been trying to kill him, um, trying to poison him. Uh, Catherine of Aragon had just died January of that year, and it was a common rumor at court that she had been poisoned by Anne. We now know that it was probably cancer but at the time they didn't necessarily understand all of the what the disease could do so henry fitzroy i think picked up on that and was like well if she's gonna poison that rival then she'll probably want to come after me too (laughs) and so he he started to get a little bit paranoid and he actually said around the time of her execution that he ought to thank god for having escaped from the hands of that woman who had planned my death by poison (laughs) It's not funny. It's really not funny. But I just love the fact he's like, that woman. Like, he won't even use her name. No, he's firmly set. They they are not friends. Firmly no. set against each other. But I mean, if we're talking about pettiness, the the last laugh definitely goes to Henry Fitzroy. Oh, he's yeah. one of the nobles who attends Anne's execution um, as, you know, kind of the highest peer in the realm. So he is there to witness her die. And there is a story that I've seen repeated a lot from various Victorian sources. So it's one of those maybe, but maybe not kind of things. But um, just the fact that it exists kind of shows you the the bad blood between these two. It's custom when you're attending an execution, especially one that's kind of as solemn as the first time we're killing a queen, that when the sword or the axe falls, you bow your head as a show of respect for the soul moving on. Apparently, Henry Fitzroy did not show this respect to Anne, and he actually watched as she was killed. Again, I think that speaks to the paranoia of, I I don't know what she's capable of. If I don't watch this hit her, I know she's not dead. Maybe, or it's just, I, just... Uh, I, I don't owe her this respect, no. so I'm not going to give it to her, even though it's the respect that you would technically show a criminal, like a, somebody yeah. who had actually done a thing. Um, yeah, but they're, again, not 
a hundred percent clear sources for this, but it is something that you see repeated. I think Hillary Mantel includes it. Um, so it's something that has it's it's permeated kind of popular image of Henry. So yeah, just goes to show you that even in the popular imagination, these two are not friends. No. But then a month or so later after Anne's execution, Henry Fitzroy himself dies. Um, he's in his late teens, early 20s, and dies of an illness. So it's kind of a, a like you kept saying, it, it's, a, it's a what if, uh, you know, he had actually grown up to stick around and become a, a power player. Like, would he have challenged Edward at all? Ooh. Would he have been part of Edward's court in some capacity? It's fun to speculate. But it means that really Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn are the only of our queens who ever really had to interact with him at all. And so I think the answer to the larger question then of how did Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn deal with Henry's relationship with Bessie Blount and the product of it, it's it's the bigger answer to that question is that they were threatened by it. Yeah. Um, in, 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 and you can see that in how they interacted with Henry Fitzroy. Yeah, I think that's Bessie's legacy. Even if we can't talk too much about her as a person because we don't know, we can talk about what effect her actions had on wider Tudor history. And it doesn't necessarily fit into the stepmother episode because it's it's yeah. messier than that. But um, hopefully this is kind of a nice conclusion to the motherhood series because it's like the mother who was kind of on the fringes of the main action and was in the main action through her child. can't really do a a typical outro for you because this is the end of our motherhood series we have talked about potentially doing a live wrap-up episode in the way that we did a kind of a preview at the beginning of the series so please make sure you're following us on socials especially instagram at six queens pod to get updates about when that's going to happen because that will be fun but otherwise, we are pretty much done for this series, and now we're going to start putting our efforts into planning for next series, series five. So, Crazy! Series I five! I know! So, uh, haven't decided what the theme's going to be for that. We will keep you posted on that as well, and any timing. But, yeah, that's that's it for motherhood. So I wish we could give you more concrete uh, sort of preview of what's to come, but we will certainly keep you updated once we ourselves know. Again, make sure you're following us on all of our social media platforms and you're subscribed on the podcast app so you'll get a notification when we do end up posting an episode again. But until then, we will see you for whenever we see you next. <laughs>